everyone, and welcome back to the Humans of James River. I'm your host, Ireland Rogan, and you are listening to Season 2, Episode 10. My guest today is James River Volleyball Coach, Convocation Speaker, Motivational Speaker, and Comedian, Coach Micah Bam Bam White. And he speaks on his life story and just all of his different experiences. And I hope that you all enjoy. What's up, everybody? It's me. Um, I'm Michael White. Uh, some people know me as Micah Bam Bam White. Uh, some people know me as Coach White. Some people know me as Comedian Micah Bam Bam White. Um, I've even had people call me Reverend White. Um, it doesn't matter. Some people know me as Dad. Well, one person knows me as Dad. That's my daughter. Um, born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, raised in the South. Um, from the beginning of life, um, and I guess I'll be as transparent as my life has given me the ability to be transparent. Um, born actually to a mother and a father who were both teenagers. Um, at the time, my mother, believe it or not, was in a relationship with another woman uh, back in 1974 when I was conceived. Um, and I was born in 1975. Um, born to her, um, my dad, they both were still trying to figure out life. I, my mother took me to a party when I was about two or three weeks old. And well, she was getting ready to take me to a party, but my mother's girlfriend's mother was like, you're not taking that baby to the party. So she ended up keeping me, ended up taking me literally from my mom. Um, so she, that family started to raise me. So that family was the Garrett family. Um, so from, I would say about three to four weeks, I was raised by the Garrett family. And then about a year in my uh, biological grandmother, who's my mother's mother, she adopted me. She adopted me so I kind of wouldn't go into the foster care system because my mother wasn't in no position to really raise a child. Uh, but they shared um, caretaking of me as a child. So I was started off being raised by these two families. If I could say the distinct difference between the two families, one was a very uh, religious family. Um, the, the, the father was a minister, a pastor of a church. Um, the mother was very, very, very religious. Every Sunday, if, if you were there at their house on Sunday, you were going to church. I don't care how much you fought. I don't care how much I wanted to see Nickelodeon. I don't care. I was going to church. So uh went to church. Now, my mother's mother, um, I call her Madea. So if you hear me say Madea, I'm talking about my grandmother that adopted me and raised me. Um, she was very... Um, she was very strict as it came to not getting in trouble, but she wasn't very strict as it pertains to who she wanted me to be. I think she allowed me to work my own ways out and desires out for me to figure out who I wanted to be. She just wanted to make sure I stayed out of trouble. Um, she worked at the VA. Um, her husband, my grandfather, he was a Tuskegee Airman and he had died in the war. So I never got to meet him. Um, but she was very, uh, Loving, very uh, cared for me in a way that nobody else has ever shown this type of care towards me, which has made it very hard for anybody I've ever dated after that. Because I'm like, if you don't care for me, like my grandmama cared for me, then you don't really care for me. Um, so she, but she was that person. Uh, she was amazing. Um, she taught me how to think, not so much what to think, in the sense that, for an example, I, I was born and raised in a very low-income neighborhood. 
Um, in my house, we had roaches. In my house, we had rats. Um, in my house, if there was a roach on my sandwich, that did not mean throw the sandwich away. It just mean thump the roach, blow the sandwich where the roach was, and eat the sandwich. I know that sounds gross, but it was the way I was raised. We raised off um, powdered milk. A lot of people don't even know what powdered milk is. Uh, but we wouldn't buy regular milk simply because if we bought regular milk, it was full too soon. So we would buy powdered milk, which is powder you put in the water, you shake, you stir it up, and it turns into milk. Not really, but that's what it was. Um, I remember getting boxes um, with fruit and cheese. There used to be this block of cheese used to come in this box, and you just have to slice the cheese up. And the, the block of cheese was probably about that big, literally. And it made the best grilled cheese sandwiches ever in the history of life. This block of cheese. Uh, but getting bread. So we, we, we sort of made it through life when I was a child um, through the system. But my grandmother worked, you know, you know, I know a lot of people like, you know, well, someone going right. No, my grandmother busted her butt. She retired from the uh, from the VA. Um, after she retired from the VA, um, she pretty much was raised me off of the money that was sent to her from the military due to my grandfather's death as a Tuskegee Airman. So we, we figured out a way to get by. In my neighborhood, uh, I was born and raised in a very gang-ridden neighborhood. I lived on the side of the block that people would consider the blood side of the block. Um, but we had bloods, we had disciples, we had crips. Um, all in my neighborhood, I played basketball with all of them. But because of where I lived, I couldn't sometimes go visit my other friends because they lived on streets that didn't accept me. Not because I was a gang member, but because I lived in a certain territory. Um, but I realized something early in life. And that was, if you make people happy, then they will accept you. Not only will they accept you, they will also protect you. Um, and they'll protect you from your own decisions. I know this sounds crazy. What do you mean, Michael? They'll protect you from your own decisions. So I did go to try to join the Bloods because I figured that if this is where I am, I'm already going to be considered a Blood. I might as well go and jo join a gang. So I went to go join a gang. And when I walked in, the leader of the gang uh, pretty much punched me in my chest and told me to get the heck up out of there. He didn't say the heck, but he said, get the heck up out of there um, because that's not who I was. So because of who I showed my community, even at an early age, what my heart was, people would not let me go down roads that wasn't going to benefit me. Um, so there was a lot of honor back in those days in the street living, if you will, where now it's not so much honor. It's just about, you know, man eats man. Well, back then there were rules, you know. Um, so fast forward, I get to high school, played all kinds of sports as a kid, started playing trumpet when I was in elementary school. Um, after playing trumpet, I got to high school. Oh, also played a lot of sports, played basketball, played baseball. Baseball was my very first sport. Uh, baseball was also something, as I look back, had I had the finances and I had I had the guidance, I probably could have been a professional baseball player. I was very good at the sport but just didn't have the resources and the guidance to push me into that level of greatness that, that I had inside of me. So when I, and I say that comparing to that to now coaching high school volleyball and coaching club volleyball and watching how kids um, are able to excel because they have resources and because they have guidance, I wish I would have had that same thing. And I think even now in today's time, there are a lot of kids in certain neighborhoods that has that same, that have that same type of, unique gift, but don't have the resources and the opportunity and the people around them to nurture that gift. Um, and that's what I fight for. 
every day. Um, the way that I try to live my life, the way I try to pour into kids. But I get to high school, uh, join the band. My grandmother wouldn't let me play football. I wanted to play football, but she wouldn't let me play football because I didn't have insurance. We didn't have insurance. So if I got hurt, and we didn't have money. So getting hurt would have been detrimental uh, to our everyday living. So she wouldn't let me play football. So I was in the band. Started off playing the trumpet, moved from the trumpet, played the drums my freshman year, moved from the drums, picked up a tuba my sophomore year. Um, after playing the tuba, um, I learned how to play the trombone. I learned how to play the saxophone. And even to this day, I still play the piano, which is something I learned in high school. Um, now, let me tell you a quick story about the piano. Um, the reason I learned how to play the piano, because there was this young lady named Tanya. She, I, I had a big crush on Tanya, right? So Tanya was in the jazz band, and they needed another pianist in the jazz band. I had no idea how to play piano, but I lied and said I was a great pianist just so I could be with Tanya next to her doing these jazz experiences. So I'm sitting, I never get the day I was found out that I did not know how to play piano. I realized Tanya and I had the same music. So whenever we would do concerts or practice, I would just turn my piano down and let her play. So people thought it was both of us playing the piano. Well, we had a jazz concert at a middle school and Tanya got sick, which left only one pianist, me. That was a moment where there was a solo that needed to be played by the piano. I'm laughing because I remember this just like it was yesterday. And um, the whole band cuts off. The director points at me and I pointed back at him and he pointed back at me and I pointed back at him and now the whole band at this point is dying laughing because they know I don't know how to play piano. He goes, play the note. So I put my finger at the top of the piano and ran it all the way down the piano and all the way back up the piano. Everybody is dying laughing. And of course, after that, I was kicked out the band. But what it ended up making me do was go and learn how to really play the piano. Um, so that's one of those. That's an amazing stories. story. Oh, <laughs> that just. <laughs> I used to play the French horn, which is the nerdiest thing in the world, from third to ninth grade. And so I've been at, in the band at James River, and I can just imagine that happening with our conductor, Mister Turpin. Oh. All of that is just really funny. That is, I wow. <laughs> Oh. That is an all to impress a girl. If I was that girl, I'd be so star- like I would. My heart would be welling up. Oh my gosh! If a boy ever did that for me, I'd marry him. I would. <laughs> well, hey, <laughs> I would. I just wanted. I, you know, in, in high school, um, I in high school. I wasn't a ladies' guy, so I didn't really know how to like really approach women and 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 use my voice because. <laughs> I was raised in such, I don't know, low income and, and thinking that I didn't feel worthy. So that was my way of flirting, you know, and my way. And Tanya never knew that until and she probably still don't know it unless she hears this podcast that oh she's my gosh. that I joined the band. Yep. Um, same wow. thing happened with volleyball. You know, I, I started playing volleyball in high school. Um, and it was for the same reason. Tracy Pruitt, a girl I had a crush on. Um, I walked into the gym my ninth grade year. Um, but and, and let me back up as I tell this Tracy story. Let me also preface this by saying that this was probably one of the most significant things, moments that happened in my life, even though 
Um, and I say God because I'm a, I'm a big God person. Even though God used a weakness for something that has helped me for the rest of my life. So I go into the gym and Mrs. Stutter, that was our high school volleyball coach. Um, she was like, Michael, do you want to play volleyball for this summer league team called Youth Games? And it was 14 and under. They had all these different sports, volleyball, basketball, girls and boys, tennis, girls and boys, bowling, girls and boys, um, track, girls and boys, um, all these different sports. But it was done, I think, in 27 cities across the United States. And you would all meet in one city different years and you would compete. Well, I, well, Ms. Stutter coached the volleyball team and it was a co-ed volleyball team, which girls and boys were on the same team. So she asked me one day, she said, Micah, you're a pretty good athlete. Would you like to play volleyball? Now you just heard me explain the neighborhood that I was born and raised in. You can imagine that a black dude playing volleyball in that neighborhood ain't something that happens. All right. We basketball and football. I was even a little ashamed to play baseball because it's not considered a tough sport, you know? So I'm like, I'm not playing volleyball. No, Miss Stutter, I'm not playing volleyball. So she goes, well, Micah, um, she said, you sure? It's a co-ed team. I said, what do you mean by co-ed? She's like, girls and boys play on the same team. Now I'm like, I'm definitely not playing volleyball. You want me to play with girls? No, I'm not doing it. I walk out in the hallway about 20, 30 minutes later, and Tracy Pruitt, um, who I had a crush on at the time, Tracy walked up to me and said, uh, Miss Stutter said that you might play volleyball with us. And I was like, us? She was like, yeah. I said, you on the volleyball team? She was like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm on the volleyball team. And from that day, I started playing volleyball. Now, I had already knew Tracy since middle school because she and I were in the same choir. So I was in a gospel choir that would travel around um, and sing for different churches. It was a community choir. And so she went to a different middle school. I went to a different, I went, she went to Arrington Middle School. I went to Green Acres, but we were in this choir together and we ended up at the same high school. And so that was my way of trying to get next to Tracy. So that same process of thinking that happened with the band is why I started playing volleyball. So there you have it. Um, it's all meant to happen. Say? It's all meant to be. Oh, it's, it's all it's meant all to happen. It's all, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, on that team i love that no it's cool so speaking of volleyball on that team i um i met uh a brother by the name of michael chablon michael was the only white guy on the team michael lived out in the suburbs um practice was at the high school that i went to which was in the hood you can think of this in a richmond sense practice was at george with high school um that was that's probably George with Armstrong is probably a good idea of the high school that I went to. So Michael would come from Founders Bridge, go all the way to the hood, come all the way to the hood, play volleyball. But Michael and I hit it off. We became very good friends. So Michael spoke to me about this club volleyball, which I had no idea what club volleyball was at the time. So I decided to go and try it out. I tried it out on that particular team. I made the team on that particular team. I met a brother other than by the name of Michael Hurd. Michael Hurd family took me in. So the summer of my, I mean, the summer of my 10th grade year, I spent most of my time out in the suburbs. So at this point, I am now really being raised by three families. My mother's mother, which my mother's family, um, the lady, Miss Garrett, who was my mother's girlfriend's mother, that family, 
and now the Heard family. So by the time I'm in the 10th grade, I'm being raised by two black families, one white family. That really changed and molded my perspective of life, humanity, what's real, what's not real. Because if I could be honest, you know, in the hood, if you will, there weren't a whole lot of good things said about white people that lived in the suburbs. So my thinking about who these people were wasn't something that I had experienced. It was something that had been told to me. But when I went out and finally had the chance to experience life out in that community, experience life with that particular culture, I started to find out that most of the things that were told to me was not true. And also on the flip side of that coin, my friends who were out there in the suburbs, Scott, Matt, Sally, all those people, they started to say the same thing to me. Because without them spending time with the Black guy from the hood early in life, they would have had this way of thinking about me without even knowing who I was had they not met me, which changed. So I will say volleyball, the introduction of volleyball and the people I have met through volleyball has really been a significant um, aspect of how I view humanity, humanity and how I view life. And it's made me very well-rounded as it pertains to communication, understanding, empathy, um, how to approach certain things, how to understand certain things, how to look past what somebody is trying to say when I know for a fact that what you're saying is not true, but not because someone else told me something different, but because I experienced something different. So volleyball has been very significant to my growth in life. Very significant. Um, so then after high school, uh, well, going stay in high school, play sports, wasn't, and I'll be honest, I wasn't the most studious person. Um, I was raised with a learning disability and the learning disability that I had, it, I still struggle with it to this day. Um, it's a very, um, rare learning disability and it's not something that is highly diagnosed. So there really aren't any things that are out there for me to get better at what it is, but I know what it is. Um, but what happened was my sister, my sister who was in the Garrett family, Paulette Garrett, um, rest in peace. God sent this angel to me. Like I said, the Garrett family was the family that took me in when my mom was trying to take me to a party. Well, I, I called them my brothers and my sisters. So my sister Paulette ended up becoming the principal of the elementary school that was on the same property as my high school. So after school, when I would have normally been hanging out with people I probably shouldn't have hung out with, my sister would get out of school, drive around, pick me up, and make me get in the car with her. Um, once my grades weren't doing well, she would make me come to her house and do homework. I mean, this she was a teacher. She was an educator. She had become a principal, but she had been an educator all up until that point. So she would sit me down, make me learn things that I couldn't learn in school because of the environment and the way it was being taught. I couldn't get it. I had become such a good student working with my sister that I never forget, I took a test in American history and I was failing American history. I was F's and D's. And my sister um, pulled me to the side, started working with me. I go and I take this test and I make a 96 on the test. And hey, my teacher knew without a doubt in her mind that I had cheated. She was like, oh, there's no way Look at all your grades before. Now you're going to make a 96. No, no, no. So she made me retake the test 
after school, different questions on the test with nobody else in her classroom. I made 100 on that particular test. So what it showed me was systematically, everybody doesn't learn the same. And you can't throw people to the side and put them in special ed classes because they're not getting it the way that the system has set up for them to get it. Because we're all different. We're all human beings. We all come from different ways, different processes of thinking, different processes of life. But it's hard for a whole school system to cater to the uniqueness of every individual. So I think we really have to learn how do we teach those that might not be getting it one way without saying that they just don't get it. They're dumb. Because I think the system fails them because the system could have failed me had it not been from my sister being the principal of the elementary school that was on the same property as my high school that made me go with her to learn outside of school, uh, which made me a very studious person. I ended up getting a band scholarship to Alabama A&M to play uh, the tuba. So I ended up becoming very good at the tuba. Um, got a band scholarship to go to Alabama and Alabama and M. Did not take it. Started school at uh, UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, went there. Then after school, I really couldn't figure out what I wanted to be. So I decided. Um, well, I knew in school that I wanted to be a comedian. Like I knew that I want entertainment was was in my spirit. It was, it's, it's who I am to this day. It was who I was then to the point that when I was in high school from 10th grade, all the way until I graduated every pep rally, I was the leader of the pep rally. If the football team, we were playing a football game and the team wasn't doing well because I was in the band. So I played the tuba. I would put my tuba down, walk down to the bottom of the stands and I could literally, and we would probably have about, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 2,000 people come to our football games that supported our school. And I would go down to the bottom and literally get the entire crowd involved in cheers and chants and things of that nature to get the football team fired up to the point that my senior year, there were games that I did not march with the band so that I could be the cheerleader for the entire school. So I was that guy. I was when, I, when we did a who's who at the end of the season, they created a segment called Michael White or Do It. And what they did in the program was like, there was a teacher that stood up. She was like, hey, we need somebody to play the bus driver. Michael White or Do It. Hey, we need somebody to um, go to the office and help with the principal. Michael White or Do It. So it was like this thing, like whatever we need done, Michael White or Do It. Um, so that became like the way that I got through was by entertaining people, being this bright person, being this giving person of myself. Um, so when I got to school, I, I studied business administration, which was good, um, but it wasn't who I was. I wanted to be an entertainer. I wanted to be a comedian. But then we get this ideology in our heads that you need to go and get a real job. Now, I know where that comes from and I know how important that is. So I don't want to minimize the ideology, but I also don't want to eliminate the thought or the fact that if you as, as a human has something inside of you that is a burning desire, it is not there to just be overlooked. It is there for a reason. You need to go and find the people that can nurture that burning desire. And if it's something that the masses aren't doing, it might be a little harder to find that person, but don't conform 
to become what everybody else thinks you should be when you know that it's something else inside that you want to be. Because when you become that, you're going to go through a process in life that's going to show you so many different things that you would not have seen, experienced, or known had you gone down the other path. Also, let me say that even though I wanted to be a comedian, I became a comedian, there is a level of education that comes with that. It might not look like the education that is formally given in schools, but it is an understanding, a thought process, and a learning that you have to go through if you want to be great at whatever you're doing. It doesn't just happen. If I became a star tomorrow, uh, which would be pretty dope, but if I became a star tomorrow, people would think that I just started doing what they see me doing. They would have no idea that I've been doing this for almost 25 years because we don't conceptualize the work that it takes to become great at things because we don't get to see the work. We only get to see the result. Um, I think that's why a lot of people want to be certain things. Oh, I want to be a professional football player. I see these professionals out here. Well, they don't understand the sacrifices that these professional athletes made to be on that particular stage. And then when you start to go through that process, you start to be like, okay, maybe I don't want to be a professional football player because you're not willing to put the work in. You're not willing to learn what needs to be learned. You're not willing to make the sacrifices. Um, your kid, your friends want to go out and, and party on a Friday night, and instead, and but you know you got to work out at six o'clock the next morning. Well, you got to make a choice. So I want to go hang with my friends. Or do I want to chill because I got to work out in the morning? Those that chill and work out in the morning, those are the ones that might make it. Those that want to go party, it's not that they won't make it, but they're making it harder for themselves to make it. Um, so then after that, I moved to Richmond, Virginia. I was 21 years old, 21 and nine days years old. I had moved here September 29th. 1996, nine days after my birthday. My birthday is on the 20th. Um, so I moved here because I wanted to get to know my father. My father, he went military when I was young, so I never really got to know him. He was always uh, present in the sense of I knew who he was. We would talk. Um, if he ever came to Birmingham, we would always spend time together. But I didn't have a relationship with him. So I decided to move to Richmond after he was here. He had retired, left the military, joined, and he hadn't retired yet. He had left the military and he was becoming a postman, which is how he retired from the government. But I wanted to get here, move here and get to know him. So I moved to Richmond um, and it didn't really go as planned, to be honest with you, which, you know, which is fine because had I not moved here, then I can guarantee you nothing would have happened. But I moved here. Um, there's a saying I love to uh, I love to repeat. You miss 100 percent of the shots that you don't take. So you got to take a shot to find out whether it's going to go in or not. If you don't take the shot, it's not going in. So you got to take the shot. Um, so I took the shot, moved here. The issue that came in with my father was he was married and my stepmother and I didn't necessarily see eye to eye. I was 21 when I moved here and she was doing things like giving me a nine o'clock, 10 o'clock curfew. What? Hold on. I've been raising myself since I was 15, 16 years old, literally raising myself since I was 15, 16 years old. I am 21. And now you want to tell me to come in the house at 10 o'clock? That wasn't going to work. No, I am not. No, it just wasn't going to work. I was doing things right. I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a bad young adult. I wasn't mischievous. I wasn't doing things out like stealing or hurting people. I just wasn't who she thought I should be in her mind. So she ended up kicking me out. 
So I was homeless for about six months. Um, there ain't a park in Richmond, Virginia that I haven't slept in in my car. Um, I've traveled around where nobody else could sit in my car because I had clothes and everything in my car. And the only seat that was available was the driver's seat so I could drive around. Um, so that part of life taught me a lot. It taught me how resilient I was. It taught me how creative I was to think about things. Um, you know, when a cop taps on your window at three o'clock in the morning and tells you, you got to get up because you're sleeping illegally in a park. Um, you wake up and you figure out where else can I go to go to sleep? Um, so that was my beginning in Richmond, Virginia. I started a job at Cooper's Watchworks right here at, um, it was Cooper's Watchworks right here at um, Chesterfield Town Center, right in the middle of the, I think it's Dakota Watchworks now, but that used to be Cooper's Watchworks. That was my first real job, if you will. But what I did, which also did not, my grandma, my grandma, my stepmother did not like. When I moved here, I immediately went into the phone books and started finding nightclubs that would allow me to bring my comedian talents and book some comedy shows. So my first gig was at a place called the Slip at Shaco, which is in Shaco Bottom, right up from the tobacco company on 12th, right next to the Bank of America building on that short street between Maine and I think it's Cary. Um, I believe that's Cary, Maine and Cary, I think it is. Um, but it was right there. It's my first comedy gig. Started doing comedy there. That lasted for about four or five months because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, the learning curve. So then I went to another nightclub called Armani's, which is on Midlothian Turnpike, Richmond side. Um, and they were already doing comedy, but they needed a host. So I started hosting at Armani's. As I'm hosting, I never forget, it was the very first time I had ever heard my name on the radio as they did the marketing and advertising. And I was sitting at the light one day, listening to Power 92, and it comes on, Comedy Night Live at Armani, hosted by Bam Bam. And I'm looking around, like, at people in other cars, like, yo, that's me. That's the, the, you, What channel your radio station on? It's not, yo, Ben, that's me. Like, I'm so excited that, that I'm that guy, you know? I'm finally hearing my name, and it was like a moment of, clarity and a moment of certification that I was doing something that I should continue to do, you know? So I started hosting at Armani's, um, started getting all these comedy gigs. Then I started to travel the world um, doing comedy in time. And since then, you know, 20, March 24th, this year would be 25 years for me. And I can say, you know, I have been to... I have been to every state in the United States except, I think, six. I've been to hundreds of cities. I've been to four different countries. Um, I have met some of the most influential people that you can possibly meet in life. Um, I mean, from hanging out with and writing and kicking it with LeBron James because I do comedy um, to hanging out. I mean, I, I can go on and on with the names that of people that I've met, hung out with. And not just met on some, oh my God, look at you, but met on like an eye-to-eye basis. Like, I didn't just meet LeBron. I hung out with LeBron. And I didn't, of course, I was excited inside, but I had to act like, you know, this is what I do all the time, son. Hang out with LeBron. That's what I do. Um, but that wasn't the case. Inside, I was like, oh my God, I gave me, oh my God. It was, but I've had this experience. Um, and, and, and that experience through comedy, you know, t- to be able to perform in front of, 15,000 people and to say something 
that 15,000 people react to and laugh or give each other a high five. Um, you, as a child, thinking about how I told you I was raised, you, I would have, it's, it's maybe inside, I believed always that I would become a success story um, as I still continue to work to be a greater success story. But I think if you would have told most of the people from my neighborhood, even my family members, they wouldn't have saw it coming because it just doesn't happen with people that come from where I come from. Um, so I get here and then I uh, was going to coach basketball as we speak about sports. I was going to coach basketball and I was looking for some basketball program because I was a big basketball player outside of baseball. Basketball was my thing. Um, I did play semi-pro football. As I speak about the football thing earlier, my grandmother would not let me play because I didn't have insurance. So when I moved to Virginia, um, I found out there was a semi-pro football team called the Virginia Hornets. So I was like, you know, I'm going to go try out for the semi-pro football team. And I went, tried out for the semi-pro football team and made it just simply because I was an athlete. Um, made the team, um, played for two years, got hit one time. Um, also, that was the day I met Jesus. And after that day, I realized that football wasn't my thing. Um, not because I wasn't tough enough, but it just didn't make sense to be 21 years old and um, limping, can't lift my right shoulder. Like It, it, was, it was stupid. So I was like, okay, all right, tried it, check the box, play football at a high level. Now it's time to go do something else. So I was going to coach basketball. And I was sitting in the office at, I was sitting in the office at, um, no, the computer lab at Virginia State University. And the volleyball coach walks in. My buddy, he ran the computer lab. Volleyball coach walks in. Well, he wasn't a volleyball player, knew nothing about volleyball. He only become the coach because the head coach had gotten fired for some fiscal issue. So my buddy was like, don't you play volleyball? I like, yeah, I play volleyball. He's like, well, they need some help. And I was like, well, I don't know about coaching. So the guy walks in. He was like, hey, will you help me? I was like, well, I'll come to practice and, you know, teach you some drills. Long story short, I ended up coaching volleyball at Virginia State for two years. So my first year after coaching volleyball at Virginia State, um, this is a crazy story, right? This is one of those, again, volleyball, significant stories. I'm coaching volleyball at Virginia State. I go to RVC, Richmond Volleyball Club, to join to play volleyball. Um, not to coach, but to play. On my application, now keep in mind right now, I'm not planning to play to coach volleyball. I, I'm just doing this because this guy needed help and I know a little bit about volleyball. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go play. I love to play the sport though. So I went in, signed up and they were like, all right, it's 50 bucks. And I was like, it's, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was money to play. So I don't have $50. So I left. Went to go watch a scrimmage at Virginia Union University that same night. So I go with the volleyball team from Virginia State. Virginia Union is playing against Bowie as in a scrimmage. We're sitting in the bleachers, and I'm not making this up. As we're sitting there, I look in between my feet, and sitting there is a $50 bill. So I grab the $50, hold it in my hand. I said, hey, is anybody missing any money? Everybody look. Nobody says they're missing any money. I said, check to make sure nobody's missing any money. Nobody said they're missing any money. So I literally left the scrimmage early because I wanted to get back to RVC before they closed. Left, went and signed up, paid my $50 to play volleyball. And when I paid to play on my application, I put on that I coached at Virginia State. Well, the very next morning, Skip, 
um, who's the director of youth sports, um, youth volleyball at RVC, at least he was then. He called and asked, would I be interested in coaching volleyball? I was like, yeah, uh, you know, I'll be interested in coaching. I show up the next day. I ended up becoming a volleyball coach at RVC. Well, while I'm there, I meet this family, the Mingers. And the Mingers, they were coaching. I was coaching 16 regional. I think she was coaching 16th national. Um, but I meet them. And I was like, hey, I want to leave Virginia State. Um, I want to coach in the high school rankings. And I'm thinking about coaching at Huguenot. And they were like, well, why don't you come to James River, where we're coaching, coach our JV team. And as you coach our JV team, it'll teach you how to coach high school volleyball. And you'll understand more about high school volleyball than you can go over to Huguenot and coach. I'm like, perfect. Count me in. So I went to, came to James River, coaching the JV team. This is in 2000. Coaching the JV team. Um, and at the end of the season, a job opened up in Powhatan. Well, the Mingers lived and still live in Powhatan. So they were leaving. Well, because they were leaving, they were like, hey, we're leaving because we want to go coach at Powhatan. We've gotten the job. What do you want to take over the program at James River High School? And I was like, why not? I'm here. That's how I ended up at James River High School. Um, so I, this now keep in mind, this is my third year coaching volleyball. I still don't know much about volleyball as far as coaching. It takes a while to get good at it. But I had some of the best parents and teachers that were patient with me, understood how to correct me and make me a better person and a better coach in those days. And I, it, it, it was, it was, I can't even really explain how significant that move in my life really was. Um, so I get to James River, coach for nine years. Um, after six coach of the year in the district, three coach of the year in the region, uh, I think my record was 134 wins and 27 losses. Um, district championship year after year after year after year. If you go into the gym, and look at anything from 2000 to 2009, all of those district championships are from the teams that I was a part of. Um, so after that, I said, I'm going to move to L.A. You know, I want to go to L.A. I want to pursue my career in comedy. Um, I have given up myself to the youth as much as um, I felt like, you know, more than what I thought I would. But as much as I wanted to, not that I didn't want to give more, but I was like, OK, now it's Micah time. It's time for Micah to do Micah. You've been working on comedy. Let's go. So I left James River, moved to Los Angeles, um, get to L.A. Things are going great, going extremely great. Um, comedy clubs, I'm, I'm, I'm headlining, and I'm a no-name, per se, in comparison to some of the celebrities. But I, I am doing well in L.A. Started a comedy college in Hawaii. I uh, was going back and forth to Hawaii every other month to Honolulu to teach people how to do comedy. I come home from Hawaii one year, 2012 to be exact. And uh, I get home, it was the week of the Pro Bowl. The reason I remember that is because the Saturday, the Sunday that I flew back, I remember seeing Aaron, um, uh, what's the tight end's name? One of the greatest tight ends of all time. And it'll come back to me. But um, I think it's Gonzalez, but it's not, I'm not, uh, anyway. I get back. I remember seeing him in the airport dropping his son off so that he could go play the football game. I get back, get my, get back to LA and my condo got flooded out. When my condo got flooded out, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, um, living in LA is very expensive. Um, 
So I ended up coming back to the East Coast and I was going to move to New York. So I'm getting ready to move to New York. Um, as I'm preparing to move to New York, I went first to Delaware where my sisters were staying. Now, these are the Garretts again, Betty and my sister Paulette, who was the principal at the elementary school of the same pro- that was on the same property as my high school. She had had a stroke. So we had moved her to Delaware so that my sister Betty could take care of her because she was paralyzed on the right side of her body. When I get there, we find out that she has cancer. So she's um, she has cancer. My sister Betty en- ended up needing to go back to work. So my timing of being in Delaware couldn't have been better because now I was able to stay at home and take care of my sister while Betty went and started her new job. Well, at this time, I was taking trips back and forth to New York doing comedy because New York is only about two and a half hours from where my sister lived in Delaware. So I'm going back and forth. So I make up in my mind, I'm going to move to New York. Things are going great. I got this house that I'm going to live in, this pool house. Um, I was going to be living in the pool house of my friend's father, who at the time was the president of Ralph Lauren in Greenwich, Connecticut. So yeah, it's about to be good times. Um, But I was like, I need some money. So what did I do? I come back to Richmond to perform at the Richmond Funny Bone, September 20th, 2012, for my birthday. Was only supposed to be here, (coughs) excuse me, for three days. I'm still here. as I'm getting ready to, to move back to Richmond, the Mingers, again, they, their daughter wanted to play volleyball. She was 10 at the time. Quinn wanted to play volleyball, who's my goddaughter. Um, and they were like, will you stay in Richmond and coach her? Sorry daughter. to interrupt. Yeah. What's up? But I know Quinn. I went to middle school with her. I used to go to Powhatan. That's so weird. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, yeah. So Quinn's my goddaughter. Her parents were the coaches at James Ripper when I came in. So, yeah, there you go. Small world. world. Yeah, it's such a small world. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We were, like, close. I just remember, like, we were around each other a lot because we were, like, in the same, like, tag team when we were kids. That's so funny. Anyways, continue. (laughs) So, so at at the age of 10, I I sacrificed not going to New York to stay here and coach your volleyball team. Now, let me also add that at that time, I had written a business plan to open up my own theater. And so I was now in conversations with business owners and um, investors to build or buy a theater. So being here to coach Quinn also allowed me to nurture that business plan. Um, so I ended up not going back to New York. Ended up back at James River. Um, now, let me also say this. When I came back to Richmond, I went full speed ahead with community. I wanted to be a community person. I wanted to pour into community. I did not want my name to be at the top. Um, I started to realize more about life and why things are crazy for people. I was able to look at the whole gamut of my life, teams I played on, people that I've met, places I lived, how my life started, where I was at the time. And I was like, you know, now is a good time to give myself to the community and help empower people that may not have the resources to tool or that motivation to power empower themselves. Um, so those things started. And when those things started, that's when things kind of started to shift. So then fast forward five years ago, um, I had been gone for James River for seven years from coaching volleyball. I was at RVC speaking for the youth program, kicking off the year, 
And Joe Sullivan, who was at who was the coach at James River at the time, Joe was like, hey, man, I'm leaving James River. The job is yours if you want it. As a joke, I said, I'll take the job. As a joke. I did not mean it. It was a joke. Two weeks or three weeks before the season start, I get a call from uh, Mr. Boom, uh, Chip. And Chip was like, hey, Micah. No, I got a call from Tim Llewellyn. Tim called me first. And Tim was like, hey, Micah, um, just want to let you know, season starts in three weeks or two weeks or whatever it was. Um, Joe has already told us that you want the job. So just letting you know, we saved it for you. Looking forward to having you. And I'm like, WTF. Like, I'm about to go back and coach volleyball. So I went back. I came back to James River, started coaching volleyball again. I noticed there was a lot of differences. When you leave somewhere and what you left behind, you come back to it and it's different. It's a learning curve. Um, so coach came back and enjoyed every enjoyed every experience of it. I can't say that I enjoyed every minute of it because let's be real, nobody enjoys really every minute of anything when you think about coaching, teaching, learning, whatever. But the experience, I would not trade for anything. One more significant thing I'll share, and then I'll open it up for you to ask any question that you want, is that I am now a huge public speaker. The reason I am now a huge public speaker is because when I left from coaching volleyball in 2009, that same year, I was asked to come and speak at a convocation at James River. It was the very first time outside of comedy that I was being asked to speak and in a serious manner, if you will. I was nervous as all get out. Every year since 2009, I have been blessed to be able to share with the students of James River Seniors ever since then, um, which tomorrow, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but tomorrow um, I'll be coming to James River to record my convocation speech for this year. But since then, I have been speaking everywhere. I've done a TED Talk since then. I've been a TEDx coach um, since then. I've spoken at two TED events, actually. Um, I will be the keynote speaker for the Dr. King Process uh, Program for nonprofits this year. Um, I've done so much public speaking now, but it all started because James River Seniors wanted me to be their convocation speaker for one year. So James River has been a very significant tool in my life and has helped me develop who I am in a way that I think without it, it would be hard for me to gain that development anywhere else. Um, so my heart um, is, is James River will always be a part of who I am. And I just hope that I continue to live a life where James River will be proud of me being a part of who they are. And of course, you know, that comes with how you live your life and don't make those stupid decisions because you can be great. And we all know in life, you can make one mistake and everything is out the window. So, you know, I try to live the best life that I can live to represent those that have, you know, poured into me. And James River is definitely one of those uh, entities that has poured a lot into me to make me who I am today. Ask away. Oh, wow. That, you're, you really... Your life is crazy. Like, this is the craziest life story I've ever heard. Ever. You're very, you've gone through so much and you've done so much and you've achieved so much. Um, 
Oh, wow. I like, I feel like, like even writing questions, I was like, even when I was writing, I'm like, you're answering what I'm thinking about right now. Like everything. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. And I feel like everything that had happened to you, I'm also very much a God person. And I feel like just everything that happened, like it all just happened on chance, which is crazy. But like that, like that whole, I like, that's something that you would see like in a movie. (laughs) And I think in like the best way, like that's like a movie that I want to keep watching. That's um, <laughs> you know, here's a, here's a funny story. Uh, not funny. It, it really hurt me, but I had those comedy. Um, I started the comedy college in, in Hawaii and I was writing a movie that was scripted off of my experience from coaching at James River. And the movie was primarily about a black guy from the hood being a coach and a leader of white females from the suburbs and how it works and how powerful it was. And I was almost done with the movie. I, on the plane, writing some finishes to, finishing touches to the movie, had a meeting in two weeks about the script so that I can pass it to another script writer so they can clean it up. Long story short, I left the entire script in the back pocket of the seat on the airplane. And I never saw it again, ever. That... That hurts. Even as I sit here and talk about it now, never oh, saw the script. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It only means I and, and I haven't. I mean, it was. It probably took me a year to write that script, and I haven't written it again. But I'm going to write that script again. I need to just get started now. But yeah, yeah that happened. Oh my gosh, that's it the worst. It's, it's, I guess it is what it is, but it, that really is crazy. In a year? I mean, oh. You know, Ireland, in life, we can cry over the issues when they happen. And I think that's necessary because you want to get that out. But you can't cry forever. Um, you can't let moments hold you down longer than it deserves to hold you down, you know? Um, and I, I think that happens too often in people's life where something bad happens. And then 15, 20 years later, they still haven't gotten past that. And sometimes we need help to get past that. But I think, you know, we need to find the help that we need in that process because moments that don't help shouldn't hurt longer than necessary. So I just got over it. Like, hey, it is what it is. I can't change it. It is what it is. Um, Get over it. Move forward. Be grateful to know that I can write a movie. You know, look at what you proved to yourself. Look at the the stamina that you prove that you can do something for that long a time and complete it, you know? So now that you know you can do it, it sucks, but just do it again. So that's what I need to do. Let's do it again. Yeah, do it again. I I will watch the movie. If, it, if you do go along with this plan, I will watch it. I'll be full support of it. I know everyone thinks the room would be as well. So, but you know, something I, I thought about was Maybe, and even if I think about coming back to James River, maybe the reason I lost that script is because the movie wasn't finished yet. Oh. Yeah, so now coming back to James River, now I'm kind of like, yo, it's more to add to the movie. 
And I thought I was done coaching volleyball, but God knew that I wasn't. So maybe, just maybe, it was God going, you, you proved it to yourself, you can do it. I'm going to take it away because there's more to come and you ain't done yet. Maybe that's it. I, I totally agree that, you know, since everything is going to happen, it seems like everything in your life has led to one another. And probably your story just wasn't finished yet. So it, the universe, God was telling you, you're not done yet. So got to hold on a second there, even though it did, it does kind of suck in the moment for sure. I would definitely probably cry. Like if I was in your shoes, I would probably cry. <laughs> but um, everything's happens for a reason. Yep. Yep. Everything yeah. happens for a reason. That's right. <laughs> um, one thing that I guess is a little more random, but as you were talking, can you elaborate on when you met LeBron James and got to hang out with him? Because I thought that's really interesting. <laughs> and I, I don't know myself and especially other teenagers listening to this definitely want to hear more about that interaction and that oh, oh, hangout it, it, session that you had. It's a pretty cool interaction. Um, and it says, so in my opinion, um, LeBron James is the greatest basketball player ever walked the face of the earth. And I lived in the Jordan era. And I also got to watch Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And when I look at those three, um, I, I got LeBron. That's just me. I, I had LeBron before I met him. But since I met him, I definitely have LeBron. And here's why. So the story is, I was performing with a comedian by the name of Gary Owen. And Gary was booked to perform for Chris Bosh, a ba NBA basketball player, birthday party in Miami. The only people that were allowed to be at that party were the basketball players, coaches, and their wives, other than the entertainment. So I'm at this event. I'm the only one that don't nobody know um, because everybody knew Gary Owen. That's why they booked him. Everybody knew D. Ray Davis. Um, everybody knew Chrisette Michelle. Everybody knew Timberland. But nobody knew who I was. Um, I'm just as random. And the reason I was there was because, again, I was touring with Gary. So we get to this party. I perform. Gary, first D-Ray Davis performs. People laugh. I perform. They weren't paying me any attention. Like, I was a nobody to them. But I said something. And LeBron James busted out laughing. And they were eating. Let me also add that. At this point, they were eating. So I'm performing while they're eating. So not only is it hard to perform for people when they don't know who the heck you are, they're also eating. So when I said this, LeBron James busts out laughing, drops his fork, turns around, looks at me. And at that moment, you can just hear people dropping their forks. It was like he had given everybody the green light to pay attention to this no-name comedian. So I finished my set, had a great set. I walk outside and I'm on the phone with my girlfriend at the time. And Pat Riley, I don't know if you know who Pat Riley is, but he used to coach the Lakers, but he was the general manager or president of the Miami Heat at the time. And this is also, let me say, this is 2012. So this is also the year my condo got flooded out. Um, so a lot of, this is also the year I ended up back in Richmond. A, a lot of things happened in 2012. Um, so Pat, I'm on, I'm on the phone with my girlfriend out in the lobby. Pat Riley, Hall of Fame coach walks past me, he stops, he turns around, comes back, and he goes, hey, you got a second. And I was on the phone with my girl, and I was like, yo, I will break up with her. Yes, I got as much time as you need, my brother. <laughs> and so he says to me, you did a great job. He said, I see you feel a little uncomfortable. He said some other things, but the significant thing that he said to me was, I see you feel a little uncomfortable. He said, I'm here to tell you 
who I see you as a comedian is the exact same as who I see them as basketball players. So don't feel like you're out of pocket. Go in and hang out with the people you belong with. That was all the confidence I needed. So I said, thank you, uh, Mr. Riley. Um, Tell my girl, I got to call you back. I go in, I'm talking to all these players. Now, I didn't start at the top. I started like the bench players, you know, like the people that ride the pine. I'm talking to them first. Um, Then I go to Jawan Howard, go to Mike Miller. Then I go to Dwayne Wade. Ask Dwayne, can we take a picture? Dwayne was like, yeah, we can take a picture. Take a picture with Dwayne Wade. So after that, Go to Chris Bosch. Tell Chris Bosch, thank you for allowing me to perform at your birthday party. Happy birthday, all that good jazz. And then I go to LeBron. And I'm kind of like, yo, this is, this is, you know, this the king, you know? So I go and I'm like, hey, man, take this picture with me. Trying not to act like a groupie, but I'm, I'm sort of a groupie at this point. And he goes, yeah, take this picture. So as we're taking the picture, he goes, you going to the after party? I said, yeah, I'm going to go to the after party. He's like, all right, well, let's go. I'm like, let's? Let me, what do you mean, let's? Let's go. So I'm riding with LeBron James to this after party in Miami, the year that he won his first national championship in March, um, going to this after party with him. And what I realized afterwards were, was, and this is why I put him at the ghost status and you can't change my mind. I don't care what anybody says. He saw that I was a little uncomfortable. He knew, as he always has known, that he is the top dog in every room he walks in as it pertains to basketball. So he knew that if there was any way to make me feel more comfortable, it was for him to take me under his wing, if you will, and make me a part of his night. And he did it not in a, I'm looking down on you, young man, look what I'm, it was a very like natural ordinary like original thing so we get to the after party chris bosh we're all up in this vip area and i mean it's a tuesday night and you would people are at this club like it was a saturday at one o'clock in the morning in miami it was packed packed so we get there and we're up in vip and the whole night i'm next to lebron it had gotten to the point to where i stood up and i wanted to go walk somewhere i go walk somewhere he follows me. I'm like, oh, like this is, it was, it was the little things. And here's something I also noticed was everybody was having a good time. This is an adult party. You know, everybody, nobody was driving. LeBron was, but nobody was driving because a lot of people that come over on this limo bus or what have you. And so there was a lot of drinking going on and, you know, good times, high fives. There was only one person that was not drinking out of all the NBA players, out of all the people that was at the club, there was only one person that was not drinking, LeBron James. So I asked him, I said, well, you don't drink? He's like, no, I drink. He's like, but I'm in season. I don't want to do that to my body. My whole mindset of who this guy is and how sincere he is about becoming what we know him to be and the work that he puts in to be what we know him to be, it ain't by happenstance. This guy puts in what needs to be put in to be the great person and the great athlete that he is. This ain't some special guy alone. He is special, but he he puts the work in. He is serious about who he is. You know, I've had the opportunity to hang with 
My buddy played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I went to probably 60 or 70 Pittsburgh Steelers games. Um, hung out with some of the greatest of the greats as it pertains to football. And, and they have their good time. They do what they do. They're serious about what they do. I've never seen anybody at that level as committed as what I witnessed that night in LeBron James, comparing him to everybody that was around him. So that was my night. And I haven't talked to LeBron since. I haven't seen him since. But as I go on podcasts, this is probably the fourth or fifth time that I've so told this story. So maybe one day he'll hear it and, and shout the boy out and be like, oh, I remember that night. Maybe you don't remember. But maybe, maybe, just maybe. But I will see him again. God willing that I live through the days to see him again. And I'm going to remind him because I need to tell that guy, thank you. Because what he did for me that night is, has been something that has helped me from that moment up until this point in my life. But that's my LeBron James moment. Wow. Yeah, it, it's so nice and humbling to hear that the you know, celebrities, that people and kids and just everyone look, look up to are really like that great as people, just like genuinely great people. Like those are my favorite stories. Celebrities, because some celebrities, I mean, I've definitely heard stories that they're not as great as you might think they are, but <laughs> yeah. I've but met them, I've met so them too. Um, but here's what I'll also say, you know, I've met some celebrities and hung out with some celebrities that I, I hope I never, I just, I, I, I would choose not to be around them again. Um, some big name celebrities, but I also will say sometimes when the public meet celebrities, having to deal with every day of your life, somebody wanting a picture, somebody wanting an uh, 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 autograph. Somebody want to yell out something that they want you to do. Somebody not understanding that you have a real life and you have to deal with that every single day. You as a human can become a little snappy at times. So not every celebrity that people necessarily have a bad experience or moment with is as bad as that moment because it can be a, a, a very heavy way to live when you have no privacy. So, but at the same time, I've hung out with some celebrities in a celebrity environment where everybody was a celebrity and they were just flat out jerks. So those are the ones that I don't excuse. Um, yeah. No. Because yeah. no. you ain't got to Yeah, I can way. only... I was going to say, I can only imagine how... Because obviously... When, well, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be a celebrity one day. I want to be a singer and a movie star and whatever. But now, like, like that life is so hard for people like they're always in the limelight like not no breaks none it's like none see like you can go to the grocery store without being recognized which i can't even fathom and that must just be so difficult and then people are always saying that they're bad people even if they're not and like they're just on the off day but i agree people who if they're still being jerky when they're around a bunch of other celebrities and they're probably actually jerks because they have no celebrities don't really geek out over each other they're like we're we're yeah. on the same level here. We're chilling. <laughs> At that point, you can, you can be yourself. Um, there's no need to have your guard up. But when you still are a jerk in that environment, then it just shows who you really are. You know, um, oh, yeah. I've seen guys that were joke jerks to people in public, but I also had seen them when we were in a private environment, and they were totally nice people. And I'm just you know, I, but then I look at those people that had that moment with them that wasn't a good moment, and I'm just like. Uh, but you don't understand, ma'am, you are, since I've been with him over the last hour, you are the 120th person that has tried to stop him from eating his food. 
you know, like he's yeah. he's tired of it. You just happen to be the person that he just got sick and tired of saying, I'm eating, you know, something yeah. simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I do understand the, the other side of it. You know, a lot of times people see people that are celebrities eating or what have you. And you say to yourself, I probably would never get another chance to see this person. So mm-hmm. now is my time to say something, you know. Um, and and yeah. that celebrity also knows if they're in a public environment, the moment they take the first picture, it's over. It's over. True. Yeah. Because not everybody is going to want a picture. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely, I, it's, it's weird to think about because, you know, I, <laughs> very nerdily i love to sing and i sing in their choir and whatever and so you know it would always be a dream to be like a famous person and like a singer but like that just changes your the entire course of your life though you're like rich and you're probably changing a lot of people's lives you know if you use your fame in a good way which i would strive to do but also you literally can never be normal ever again well, which is just also- into, like i look at someone like taylor swift and that's just yeah. Um, but let me also say, <laughs> don't be confused. Everybody that's famous ain't rich. And I think that is something I found okay. out going, living in LA. You know, I've seen, I've, I've hung out and talked to some people that were extremely famous, but needed to borrow money to pay their tab or whatever, because they're struggling. Um, I think what happens is, is in our society now, especially with social media, it is so easy to become famous. It is very easy to become famous. But fame does not equal success. And I think that's where a lot of young people are missing the reality of fame. Also with fame comes a tremendous responsibility. And I don't think a lot of people understand that if you become famous, and you don't treat it right, it will eat you alive. And I don't think people get that. Yeah, it can totally just like ruin your life. <laughs> like, cause you are, you are in all the tabloids. Like everyone knows basically everything about you. And if you make one wrong move, it could wreck your career forever. <laughs> like, oh yes, it's you definitely high pressure. You are held accountable for, you know, Everything you do. And the thing about being a celebrity is while you do have a bunch of people cheering you on, you also got a bunch of people that's waiting for your downfall. Um, Mm -hmm. And the thing about the people that's cheering you on, when you have that downfall downfall moment, most of those people are going to go to the wayside and go find somebody else to cheer on. They're not going to stand there with you and try to push you through the process. Um, If you make it back to celebrity, maybe some of them will come back, but it, it doesn't normally happen. I mean, think about someone like Michael Jackson, you know, when he started getting very bad publicity and when the the kid situation started to come up in our society, he lost a lot of support and he had to go out of the country to regain that fame and that, that, that motivation that drove him. Because once the, the kid thing happened, a lot of people weren't dealing with him no more. And, but then if you look at how much he had done, how many charities he had given to, how many people had helped? The millions and hundreds of millions of dollars he had given. I think when Michael Jackson died, he owned the Guinness World Record for the most contributions um, through philanthropy in the history of the world. 
This is a guy that gave that much, but one thing tore him down. So you got to be real careful when you think about fame and really understand uh, what you're getting yourself into if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. And I really, this is kind of pivoting like a little bit, but I really like what you said that you know, fame doesn't equal success because you really, and I think people, especially kids like my age, like, you know, high school kind of miss that point that you don't have to be some big name or super famous to be successful. Like you could do something small that only maybe your family or your close friends know about, but you can still be a success. Um, oh, and like, absolutely. Absolutely. I realized when I lived in LA, um, that I was making more money than most of the known people that I knew. So people that were famous, I was making more money than most of them, which was weird. And that's also why now when I teach um, comedy or entertainment, the main thing that I want to teach is teach you how to make money without being famous. Because if I can teach you how to make money without being famous, then your success doesn't rely on fame. Your success relies on your everyday work and what you pour into yourself and and primarily other people. Um, You don't have to be famous to be successful. And success don't necessarily equal fame. Yeah. So that would be the way I say it. Yeah, I really like I. I mean, I have kind of thought of it that way, but also not. But I I really like that because as I think um, from the point of view of being like a student, like I think of some of the teachers that I've had and the impact they've had on me and my friends. And like that is a success in its own. But people outside of our school might not know who they are. But as the people inside of our school, they're like, I'm just going to say someone who I adore is Mr. Domacy. He coaches baseball. He's yeah, yes, yes. literally he's my favorite person like in the world. And he is such a big name in James River and he doesn't even know it, but he's a big name. Everyone knows him. And that is just success in itself that everyone, I've never met anyone that has said something negative about that man. Everyone says something positive. He's an amazing teacher, amazing guy. So that's like, when I think of success, I think of him and like, that's, <laughs> And, that's yeah, so yeah, yeah. Mr. Dummies, <laughs> that's my guy. You know, that's when I first got to James River, he was the basketball coach. And he was one of those people that that supported me, showed me the way, empowered me. Um, yeah, that's my guy. And and, and you want to be successful like him. That way, when if someone does say something negative, you don't look at Mr. Domacy. You look at the person that says something negative. Like, I don't know if something wrong with him. Something might be wrong with you. I know. Yes, exactly. That is exactly the type. Like, if someone has a problem with him, it's like that's something wrong with you. Yeah, that man's an angel. Like, yeah. that is yeah. <laughs> that yeah. he definitely didn't do anything wrong. And, and you know, and here's one of the most important things about that, um, in my opinion. When you find out that this person is a human, and they do have faults, and they do have flaws, um. Don't discount your own faults and your own flaws. And definitely don't make that person, everything that person represents, become that one thing. You know, I I think a lot of times, like if you look at, a good example would be a church, right? If you got a pastor at a church and he's an incredible preacher, moves lives, gives to the community, trains people to go and go out in the community and, and, and give of themselves. Um, but then all of a sudden you find out he has a drinking problem. That does not mean that everything that he did 
before you found that out is now no longer valid. No, that's still valid. You just happen to find out that he's not a robot. He's a human being. And I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, again, people wait on people's downfalls because they 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 want to think something bad about people because so many people think good about them. Um, so, you know, I, I, with Mr. Domacy, I'm not saying that there will ever be anything bad found out about him. But my point is, as we praise people like him, also understand that they are human, you know, and, and they're still trying to figure life out. And maybe he's such a great guy because he needs you all to push him to continue to be a great guy. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's different reasons for everything. But, yeah, just know that everybody's human. And my God, Mr. Mr. D.A., that's my guy right there. Ah, yeah. He's a guy <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that is a really good point that, you know, we do tend to idolize people. I mean, people typically people who deserve it, but there are parts of them that aren't perfect because literally no one's perfect. Um, and we do, t- especially, and I think about that too with celebrities, like, and then you hear one bad thing and you're like, oh my gosh, I guess they're not as blah, blah, blah. And it starts gossip. Um, but yeah, realizing that not everyone's perfect, that everyone, literally everyone has flaws. Like no one is flawless. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's, Mr. Domsey is a goat, if you will. Oh, he's, yeah, he's the goat. Yeah. yeah, he's yeah, he's that yeah. guy, Jacob. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Um, and just once again to pivot a little bit. Um, okay. I like to ask advicey questions a lot because I know that's like what I like to hear, especially from um an adult to kids. So the majority of my audience is you know kids in Chesterfield County. Um, but so I was just wondering, you know, since you did come from more of a low income household, and that's something that you know, I can even relate to, and a lot of people don't really know that about me because I only have, it's me and my dad, he's a restaurant manager. Like, you know, we've never had money ever. And so I was just wondering if you have any advice for those kids from like low income families that, you know, you've been super successful um, and have gone very far with what you've, you know, what you've been, the cards, cards that you've been dealt with in life. And I was wondering what advice you might have from kids who, maybe you're in the same exact situation that you were in or just a similar one on what you would say to those people? Um, wow. That's a great question. Um, the first thing I'll say, and I, I say this often is what's most important. is not what you are, but who you are. And because who you are really drives and defines and creates the results of what you are when it comes to so first find within yourself the greatness that is within as best you can with all of the craziness that's going around secondly surround yourself with people that two things surround yourself with two type of people two types of people number one surround yourself with people that appreciate who you really are not people you got to try to act like you're something else or not someone that you got to try to impress all the time. And today you're driving a nice car, but the next day you're not driving a nice car. They're no longer your friend. Forget those people. Surround yourself with people that truly appreciate you for who you really are. Secondly, surround yourself with people that are who you wish to become. So if you want to become a successful, if you want to become a millionaire, surround yourself with millionaires. Um, and surround yourself with millionaires that are also in alignment with who you are. 
I don't want to be around a millionaire that can teach me how to make money by cheating other people if that's not who I am. I need to find a millionaire that aligns themselves at the heart with who I am. Also, that person needs to have already accomplished that which I want to accomplish. Meaning, you might have a good idea how to become a millionaire, but if you haven't done it, then you really, you might be right. I'm not saying that you're you're wrong. You might be right. But I kind of want to find somebody that's already been there, done that, and is succeeding continuously at it. Um, So find that. And then the last thing I'll say, so those are the two people I'll say you should have as friends. And then the last thing I'll say is find out what you love. Because paper chasing by doing things that you don't love will only create a psychological process of, of, of internal issues. So what, what I mean by that is if, 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 if I don't want to work, like your, your, your father, restaurant manager, there's probably an element of desire and love, even in that stressful environment, that he enjoys about it, which is why he's still there, which is why he's still doing the things that he's doing. But if you don't love that, just because you're making money at it, it's not going to make you happy. The worst thing I hate to see is a wealthy, miserable person. I would rather be broke and happy than to be wealthy and miserable. Because what you will find out is that when you get that money that you think is going to make you happy, that money will only become a tool for your misery. So first you have to be happy with who you are. First be happy with what you're doing. And third, go after that dream that you have and find the people that have already accomplished that dream to make them your mentors. Um, and, and that is what has worked for me. You know, my grandmother beaten me literally at times to become a good person. That's who I am. She allowed me to find out what I love to do. That is being a comedian. And as I worked at being a comedian, I surrounded myself with successful comedians that could teach me how to become what they become, but who also were the same type of people at heart that I am. And that has worked for me. And I think that formula will work for anybody. It ain't a special formula. It's a simple formula. But what you have to do is not allow all of the noise around you to distract you from guiding yourself in that sense. Social media is going to tell you you need to do this and do that. Social media is going to tell you you need to look like this. You know, when I see people putting filters up on themselves in social media, I'm thinking to myself, and I understand it. I'm not knocking these people, but it also says to me that person hasn't come to grips with who they really are and their flaws, that pimple that is on your face. Own it. That's your pimple. Own that pimple. Um, let that be a part of why you're excited in this phase in life. You know why? Because everybody gets pimples. So why are you going to act like you ain't going to get one? Don't be ashamed of what people say are flaws. Own it. Hold on to it. Let it be. And what it end up happening, um, Ireland, what it end up happening is that things that aren't important will start to lose significance to you. Right now, a lot of people make things that actually aren't important, important. And as long as those things are important, the things that really are important, you can't deal with them because you're so busy dealing with the crap. No, 
learn how to embrace who you really are, take the filter off, say things how you really feel them, respect others, find what you love to do, and find a mentor that has succeeded at what you want to become. That's what I'll say to those people. Wow. (laughs) That is just all in all excellent advice. And that kind of honestly hit home for me. But do you have any final parting words to say to the humans of Jane River? Oh, thank you so much. It has honestly been an honor and a privilege to talk to you. Um, and I love, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. And I think that so many people will think because of this episode and will really, I think it'll really impact students and teachers alike and parents and whoever, literally whoever. I have a listener in Europe, you know, people all over the world will hear your story and hopefully be just inspired and have a little bit of a fire because of hearing your success. Yeah, thank you again. Like I said, let's not use lose sight of the reason people are going to hear me is because of you. So you are the vessel, and you keep being a vessel. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to say thank you again to Coach White for coming on to the podcast and talking with me. It was just such an honor to get to chat with him a little bit because I've I've always heard of him, um, and I saw him speak at um, the Royal Reveal. Yeah, the Royal Reveal last year, which was a capstone project. Um, but he, I think. We can all agree and recognize that his story is absolutely insane and amazing. And he's just extremely interesting and very intelligent. And it was just an honor getting to talk to him. And I really hope that you guys um, enjoyed this episode and took something from it. Um, Just as a reminder, and I know I say this every podcast, (laughs) but do not forget to go follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Humans of JR Pod. You can also, if you want, which I just, okay, I just heard the saying. It's SSR, or is that right? I don't know. But it's like, um, rate, no, it's rate, comment, subscribed. Are, I don't know. There's some catchphrase for it, abbreviation. You know the drill. I'm sorry. I just look like an absolute idiot. Um, but I feel like you guys know me well enough at this point. I just ramble on. Um, but yeah, all that would be super swell if you guys were interested in um, just leaving a review because that just helps more people um, find the podcast. Um, I have a GoFundMe page up if you want to go donate, show some love to um, just help make this capstone possible also um i started the teacher panel series on the first panel we had last night which hopefully went super well um i'm feel i'm recording this in advance so i'm not totally sure um but i bet it went super well because we had an amazing panel but so that that will be monthly so be on the lookout for that um it'll just help 
continue to build our James River community. So it, I'm really excited about it. I think it'll be great. Um, I hope that you all have just an amazing week, a great day, night, morning, whenever you're listening to this. And I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.